Hello and welcome to this week's Olive Magazine podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's Food Director, and I'll be your host for this episode. Coming up this week, editor Laura meets Dan Hunter, head chef of the highly acclaimed Bray in Australia, to talk about what hyperlocality means on the other side of the world. That includes everything from green ants to wallaby, finger limes and more. Later, digital writer Alex is chatting to Eddie Russell, master distiller at Wild Turkey, about bourbon and how to make the perfect old-fashioned. But first up, here's cookery writer Adam on his recent trip to the Tarn in southern France and a lesson in cheesemaking. Hi guys, I'm here with Adam. Adam recently went on a little foodie trip. I certainly did. Yeah, to France, a little um, area in Toulouse called Tarn. Yeah. So... Tarn, Adam. Talk me through. What did you eat there? What did you drink? What exciting new foodie things did you find out? Anything? Um, yeah, so I like to be honest, I didn't really know too much about the Tarn. Um, I'm sure there'll be a few people listening that do. But um, So I kind of went with like a completely blank slate of what I was expecting. I also did a bit of uh, like internet research, so I had a bit of an idea. But um, So the Tarn is located in southern France. Um, yeah near Toulouse or I don't know I think Toulouse is included in it um so it's sort of like a quite a rural you know reasonably um poor district of France um I was primarily stayed in Albi which is like a medieval town which is really cool like basically the sky like if from the, the vista of it, the, the skyline hasn't really changed in hundreds of years. Because so it's not like massively modernised? No, yet, no, it's definitely not. It's like it's still backward. Well, not backward, so that's maybe doing yeah, it to yeah. service. But like, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's relatively rural France. So the main things that I um, ate were like, I mean, the, the, obviously Toulouse sausages are yeah. famous. Cassoulet comes from that region. Okay, yeah, yeah. So there was a lot of duck fat Hearty and sausages foods. yeah, but, yeah. I mean, like i think that, that it's really, classically french anyway isn't yeah, it yeah and that like, speaks of like the people and the land and what they do so it's you know big filling food or hearty food yeah. to keep the cold away to <laughs> make you you know work hard and yeah, yeah. all day um but i yeah i drank quite a lot of wine when i was there because they have a, nice. a wine region called uh, or gaillac which is a town and then they have which is like the wine region it's basically like equivalent to Burgundy or the coat, uh, like yeah, Languedoc or anything okay, like that. Okay, yeah. So um, that's the area is called Gaillac. So I drank quite a lot of wine, of nice. course, like with every meal. Yes, lots of red wine, white wine with all your hearty meals. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> and so when you were there, um, when you're in Albi, yeah. Um, so did you have any other other like specific types of food like cheese or well, fromage? Funny you should funny you should yes. mention that. I went to a uh, yeah, I went to fromage. I went to a, a little farm in the Black I think it's called the Black Hills. Um, a man and wife. It was kind of like a story of uh, how I imagine modern French farming to be. Yes. So there was a man and wife couple called Sebastian and Marie. And they both had separate jobs originally, so Sebastian worked in concrete and Marie uh, was a lawyer, trained lawyer. Yeah. And um, but both their parents were farmers, so like both sets of families um, were farmers. And I think they sort of moved to the city. It went, it went to Toulouse, then kind of I don't know, got the call to like go back to go their back, roots, yeah, 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 and work yeah, and nice. work the field. So they took over Marie's um, family's dairy cows, and originally they had just been um, selling the milk to a cooperative. So in France, there's quite a lot of things where. Um, you can have a product and then you can sell it to the local cooperatives. There's always a market, so you don't have to like be 
packaging your own milk. Oh, right. You can basically so just... more to like local people. Yes, so yes. then it goes within the region, within, and then okay, it go, like someone might then buy cheese from a cooperative, uh, milk from a cooperative to oh, make their the cheese, cheese with. So okay. they, you know, they they know they can get milk on a big scale. Right. Um, but what uh, these guys decided to do was make uh, cheeses. So they with make, the milk that with they the milk, yeah. There. So they have uh, all organic milk. Like they don't spray pesticides. They just take the cows out into different fields, different wow. seasons, and feed it. Take it in, obviously hay in the winter, and uh, so it's like really beautiful milk. I tasted it. Not <laughs> not one for drinking milks like. You know, so it's pasteurized. A, no. No. So it's completely unpasteurized. Right, okay. So. It's just milk. They just take the milk and then they... Uh, yeah. I have tried unpasteurised milk before. And yeah? What was your yeah. thought? Tell me about it. I don't it. know. It was, I did it in Australia, actually, when I lived on a farm. And I was a bit sceptical because, you know, we don't have it here in the UK. And I was a bit like, am I going to die? I don't know. Well, I think but, what, what it, it... People get a bit worried about it. But yeah. basically, there's, it's, there's good bacteria. It's like a, drinking... It should be like drinking a live yoghurt. There's loads of good bacteria yeah. in it. And basically, the reason why you pasteurise it is to kill all bacteria so they kill the good and the bad but if it's good healthy organic milk it should be full of good bacteria and they will always outnumber and destroy the bad bacteria so um i mean i think we're a bit you know we're a bit scared of things like that but i mean it's quite old we've quite it's not been a been an issue for a long long time no no correct um, so yeah, they take their milk and they make uh, camembert and roquefort um, which actually isn't really um specific to the region like uh, camembert i think is a more northern cheese yeah. but um it's not like you don't it's not like parmesan who has to it has to be made in parma it's like you know they can just take the name and say they're making that that cheese in the south of france okay nice so um yes yeah, so just the them. two cheeses that I, I think they, they do make a couple of others uh, but i can't remember what they are okay you had too um, much wine uh yeah it was in the morning <laughs> i had yeah. had a couple of glasses <laughs> before but i was fine i was fine um yeah, so I watched them add the rennet to the milk um, and then, like, split the curds from the whey. Wow. And then, uh, yeah, if you go on Olive uh, Instagram, I think there's a picket, picture of Sebastian sort of scooping it out uh, oh, of I the trough. Oh, I saw the boomerang. No, yeah. he did a boomerang, yeah. Yeah, so he's sort of scooping the, the curds and the whey out of the trough into the um, moulds. That's amazing. Um, yeah, and so I think it's a third of their milk goes towards making cheese and then the other two-thirds goes to the yeah. cooperative. Um so, like, you know, it's, 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 it's a much better revenue stream for them than just selling their milk at basically base rate to a co- cooperative like yeah. their parents did. So they're kind of, they've taken their, I think it's quite, a, it's a used, not like a usual story, but it's quite a common thing in modern farming is to like, I've got this product, how can I make it work for me? As right, opposed okay. to, you know, just making it every day and selling it. Selling it. Yeah, and it's like, market. how can actually I monetize this product in a different way and make it my own? Well, I um, guess that's why they came back, isn't it, initially? They were in the city making, well, I'm not saying loads of money, but doing that, and they wanted to yeah. actually give back to, yeah. in, from their roots, like you said. Yeah, yeah. And so, Idyllic. Idyllic. Yeah, so we, we had a nice tasting. I'm actually, I am... Um, I'm having the cam- one of the- I brought a camembert home. I'm actually going to bake it tonight. Oh, so look out! Not here. No. Why would you tell me that? Because I want it. I have to eat the whole. Well, you know, <laughs> for research purposes, I have to eat the oh, whole yeah, thing. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Um, sure. Yeah, so I'm going to bake it uh, with another thing which is very um, <gasps> local to the area, which is called uh, pink garlic, which is uh, famous of the area. It's just nice garlic is it with a pink? pink. Well, the skin, the outer skin is pink. Okay. Um, so I'm going to bake it with some of that. Um, and have some crusty bread. Is it meant to have a different kind of distinct garlicky taste? Is I'm not sure that's just, even a thing. I think but... it, well, different garlics do have different tastes. Yeah. But I think it's just a good garlic, and it's you know it's just it has a pink skin, so yeah, it looks yeah, quite yeah. pretty when it's hanging or dried or nice. you know. Um, 
So local in French there, Adam. Yeah, so it. yeah, no, yeah. So I, I had like a little um, experience into their food, which was uh, really, really nice for me. So nice. Did you get up to anything else, eat anything else while you were there, or is it more just about learning about the cheese um, and the wine of the area? Yeah, well, actually, went to quite a few chateaus because oh. um, they're. It, yeah, in France they sort of make wine quite on a local basis. So a chateau might have sort of five hectares of uh, vineyards, and then just make their own little wine and then bottle it themselves, or take it to someone who bottles it for them. Wow. Um, so we went to, uh, and they're often hotels as well. So mm. we went to some very nice old converted um, chateaus, um, and yeah, tried their wine and looked around and stuff. Looked at the rooms, which was really cool. Actually, went to one. I can't actually remember the name of it, <laughs> but. Um, did you have cheese dreams for ages? Did you sleep even when you were there? Do you know there? what? From... I, I ate so much and it was in the morning because oh, okay. we actually went in the morning and took the cows out to pasture and then, what, well, because they, 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 yeah. they did the milking for us. Um, and then, yeah, then we made the cheese because obviously to make milk, you have to do, make it at a certain temperature. So it has to be really fresh right. or you heat it and it's not, it's not as good to have to heat it. You no, want to have no. it like, you know, cow cow temperature, <laughs> you know, blood cow temperature. Temp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, no, it was, really, it was a really cool trip, actually. Um, I'll be writing something up for the website yeah. for it. Um, well, that's all you I want really, from a foodie trip, isn't it? Yeah, like, and like, lots. yeah, they were just really nice guys and like, you know. Did it make you want to move and get your own vineyard? Do you know what, a little bit, yeah. a little bit. But then, you know. Sounds dreamy, I'm, doesn't I'm it? from London, so that's real, a real pipe dream. <laughs> Yeah, isn't yeah. it for all of us? Mm. Okay, cool. All right, thanks, Adam. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Bye. Now Laura catches up with Aussie chef Dan Hunter to find out why hyperlocality is the new buzzword in restaurant cooking. Hello, I'm here with Dan Hunter, who's fast becoming known around the world as one of Australia's top chefs. Having worked in some of the world's most dynamic kitchens, he's most recently been acclaimed in the last four years as the founder and head chef of Bray. Is that how you pronounce it? That's right. correct, yeah. Good. <laughs> uh, just outside of Melbourne, which is currently ranked number two in Australia's top 100 restaurants and number 44 in the world's best. This is where he and his team focus on hyper-local Australian cuisine with a fine dining edge. Last month, his debut book, or should I say monograph, Bray, Recipes and Stories from the Restaurant, came out. And today, he's here to cook in London at the Michelin-starred Lyles in Shoreditch with chef James Lowe. Hello, Dan. Hi, how are you going? <laughs> Good, thank you. Thank you so much for being awake and talking That's to okay. us. That's <laughs> okay. I'm well awake. I'm well awake. <laughs> Sounds like you've had an epic journey. Um, but before we get exactly on to kind of what Australian cuisine means and learning a bit more about what you do at Bray, yep. let's start right at the beginning and tell me about how you got into food. Kind of, was it a childhood thing that it started or...? Yeah, probably uh, quite the opposite, actually. You know, it's not... I don't have one of those stories where, you know, you were tugging on your grandmother's yeah. apron cords. Yeah. I um, just grew up in a pretty typical... Uh, family in, in Australia in, I guess, 70s and 80s, and uh, food wasn't necessarily uh, a central theme to our family. Yeah. But um, mealtimes certainly were. Certainly there was a lot of uh, emphasis from a mother for us all to be at the table and, and sort of catch up in the day with each other, and I think that was really important, actually. Um, and then sort of finished high school without really any any ambition to do something Particularly, I was unsure what to do. Yeah. Um, just travelled for a few years after that, and then basically Where got it. Where did you go? Um, Central America, India. I was in the UK for a little bit. Okay. Um, Thailand, Southeast Asia, um, and it, I guess yeah, as a sort of means to an end, I started working in kitchens to to save money washing yeah. dishes, and spent quite a bit of time doing that, and working in some pretty average places as well. Yeah. Um, but even in the really shitty places, I quite liked being in a kitchen and, and quite liked 
the sort of people that worked in restaurants and yeah. that it attracted um, wasn't very, you know, not very mainstream and and people could be themselves, yeah. you know. Um, and eventually, after doing that for a couple of years, uh, had sort of decided that I was definitely going to pursue that uh, as a profession. Okay. Um, and moved back to Australia and then at about 23 or 24, uh, started an adult apprenticeship. Came to it pretty late, relatively. Though. Yeah, quite late. I mean, look, I probably started working the first kitchen at about twenty, maybe yeah. around that. Yeah. Um, was a pretty unsuccessful period. <laughs> Broke a lot of things and <laughs> smashed a glass door at a restaurant, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, which I don't think was my fault, but I was sort of one sure. looked at. Um, anyway, and then uh, yeah, so but I mean, coming late, it's sort of um, you know. Much of that means, you know, because it's like uh, you, a lot of kids start when they're like 17, 16, mm. all these stories But I was in the kitchen when I was 14, whatever, yeah. and they're burnt out and gone usually by about 25, you know, yeah. and, and it's, I mean, it's a pretty gruelling environment sometimes and, uh, you know, sort of global context is an, an important thing when you work in a creative field as mm. well, you know, and um, I think for me having the chance of lived a bit of a life, travel, you know, find out who I was, yeah. so to speak. Uh, before starting a, a pretty intense career uh, was really beneficial. Yeah, you know? and then you went on to work at some incredible restaurants before you set up Bray in 2013. So yep. tell me about some of those because they're quite, quite interesting. Oh, look, I, I mean, I, I spent four years in Spain. I, I mean, I did my apprenticeship and spent about five or six years cooking in Melbourne and then moved to, to uh, Spain. Um, and probably there the key restaurant I worked in was Mugaritz, um, uh, in the north of Spain, the Basque country, and I was there for two years. Okay. Um, in the second year, I was a chef de cuisine, and, and sort of, I guess, being a bit older and being a bit more focused and things like that, yeah. I sort of feel like I probably moved through the ranks, so to speak, quite quickly, yeah. or a bit quicker than what would be expected. I was given a lot of um, responsibilities in a lot of kitchens just because of age, because I took it seriously, because they could trust me, those sort of things. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things with professional cookery is that, you know, it's about, um, it's responsibilities, actually. You know, in all, in all honesty, it's in an, an organisation like a kitchen, um, you're always looking for someone who you can rely on to to do the shitty jobs, you yeah. know, to do the ordering, to, yeah. to teach people things, to speak yeah. to people in a proper way, you know, all of those things. And a lot of a lot of younger chefs, they just don't have that skill. And, I mean, one of the problems today with a lot of chefs moving around so much and doing stages in every second restaurant in the world is they're always at the bottom level. Yeah. They don't learn about what being professional is. You know, they just learn how to pick things. Yeah. So um, I sort of I, – I stayed in kitchens uh, for sort of a minimum of, like, two years in every job I had Um, and in that time got to move through each time sort of progressing through a kitchen organisation and then I moved back to Australia Um, I worked at a restaurant in Melbourne or out of Melbourne called the Royal Mail Hotel it's in a country town about four hours from the city I was there for six years I was a head chef there and that restaurant got quite a bit of acclaim in Australia probably was the, the reason why I had the I guess courage so to speak or ability to do my own thing in a in a location that's not central to population yeah um and then yeah then opened bray in 2013 okay so here we are yeah here (laughs) we are so what was the idea behind bray and you know when why then why that that genre of restaurant could have been five years earlier to be honest we (laughs) were looking for four years we we really struggled to find an a like a spot that was appropriate yeah. and appropriate meaning that look 
when you invest your own money in things, you're sort of a bit more careful. <laughs> and, you know, I opened my first restaurant when I was 40. You know, a lot of people do that when they're 25, yeah. you know. And so I'd worked for, like, close to 20 years before opening a restaurant and had been thinking about it for quite a long time and, you know, rewriting and writing and rewriting business plans and, you know, just really refining what the project would be. And we just made a list, basically, that was almost unachievable in Australia, a list that was about location, you know, in a, in a town, near a town but not in the town, near the coast but not on the beach, <laughs> you know, easy to get to, good roads, all these, like a really crazy list. And um, and that sort of wasn't available. And we started to think it was a bit of a stupid list. But um, we did find a place like that yeah. and it's where we are now. And I'm glad we waited because it's, I feel as though we found a really beautiful location and it serves all the needs that a restaurant has as well. Like we're surrounded by quite interesting, what you'd say, alternative agriculture. It's double lanes away from the city to get there. It's 15 kilometres from the ocean. You know, it's it's on a beautiful property that's not so big that we're just farmers. You know, we also maintain the life as a restaurateur and a chef. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's really – it was it took a long time, but it was worth waiting, I think. Good. Well, yeah, I definitely think from the uh, the awards and yeah. the recognition you've got, it is. So you call it hyper-local Australian cuisine, yeah. the fine dining edge. Can you describe for us Brits what Australian cuisine means? Is it quite similar to us in that it's quite a, a mixing pot of cultures and techniques? Yeah, but I guess it's probably, I reckon, even more so, to be honest. I mean, I think, I mean, you know, obviously the UK's uh, is largely multicultural today, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, I think Australia is probably the most multicultural country in the world, you know. I think in Victoria alone, where we're situated, there's cuisines represented from 80 different nationalities wow. in Melbourne, you That's know. Amazing. <laughs> you know, so it's... Um, so there's a level of freedom that comes with that and a level of, like, um, I guess... Uh, like loose knowledge in a sense. Not loose being, like, uh, scrappy, but, like, it, you're sort of free to play with things that you understand and know because yeah. you've always grown up with them. Not you know? confined by a set of rules. Yeah, that that's right. And I think I think Australian cuisine is, is very free in that sense. And, I mean, it's a big question at the moment all over the world. So what's Australian cuisine? What is it? Explain mm-hmm. it to me. And, I mean, really, my wife's, as an example, is her family's Italian. In our kitchen there's people from the Philippines, Korea, you know, Italy, mm-hmm. Greece. There's Anglos. You know, that's, that's what it is. Um... And so, you know, you have this ability to to, to pick and choose a little bit, um, but I guess the defining thing at the moment for, for an Australian cuisine is, is the whole range of Indigenous ingredients that we have, the whole yeah. range of ingredients that... Um, that can't be found somewhere else. Yeah, so talk to me about these because I was reading a bit of stuff on it and they sound really, really cool <laughs> and stuff that we certainly haven't tried Yeah, I mean, it's here. funny because someone said to me the other day uh, at, a, at a meeting or interview uh, sort of saying, so so what are these things? And I reeled off, you know, 25 names mm. and it's just washing over because <laughs> obviously it's just like, you know, learning about new colours that you've never heard yeah. about. Like it's, it's just expanding the language a little bit. Yeah. But, I mean, essentially we have a lot of... Of plants, mm-hmm. mainly. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's things that range also from marsupial, you know, kangaroos and wallaby, yeah. which are completely delicious. Yeah. Um, so and what, what are they like if we were to reference them to something that we might have tried before? I'd say wallaby is more like 
a young deer, possibly, okay. but not also. Yeah, you know, but unique, not. I mean, but, it's yeah. unique. I mean, it's it's a funny thing to draw comparisons all the time. It's like, what's a banana like? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what's it close to? Yeah. Nothing else. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, they're things that have their own their own capabilities and their own identities, you know. And, I mean, really, um, you know, and then going f- further forward to, to, like, you know, green ants from northern Australia and things like yeah. that, which are really amazing citrus bursts. And, I mean, citrus is – there's dozens of different types of native citrus that you don't really find anywhere in the world. And it's funny because we talk about native foods all the time looking for, you know, the showpiece what's the, or the, the showstopper. What is that thing that we've never heard of that's really exciting – but when you talk about local food, I mean, we, I mean, the front cover of my book is from a, a, an illustration taken off a, a salt lake, you know. So we have amazing, like, natural inland salt lakes in Western Victoria, where I am, yeah. that are hand harvested by Indigenous communities. And, of course, that has a flavour of place, yeah. you know. We have all a lot of fish and seafood that you can't find anywhere else in the world, you know. So that for me is a taste of Australia as well you know yeah, yeah. so it's funny it's <clears throat> the, the conversation about like indigenous foods it doesn't seem to extend enough into what's in the waters what's what are the seasonings those types of things and really we try and just use all of those things yeah. to make a cuisine that that you definitely can't eat somewhere else in the world. Yeah, yeah definitely sounds like that. So hyperlocality relates closely to sustainability as well, um, which seems another massive priority for Bray too. And you, I've, I read that you described your food as green before. Yeah. <laughs> so t- talk to me about that. Why is that so important to you? Look, I, I mean, we, we have a 30-acre farm to look after and I've always felt quite uh, a responsibility to, to the management of that. And I guess just as a person taking the whole restauranter, business owner, chef thing out of the equation, just as a citizen of the world, I think we should be doing more to protect what we have and look after and maybe try and fix some of the mistakes that have been made over time. When you work in a restaurant, it's quite shocking the amount of waste that you see. It's quite shocking day to day. I mean, you know, I think sometimes if you work... If you work in an office, obviously you see things like paper and plastics and things like that and, and, you know, even down to ink and things, you know. And it's sort of today, I think, you know, those cultures of largely looking after the waste they make and trying to do the right thing. I mean, they get sent off to recycling and we hope that it all gets done. Yeah. But no one actually checks, just goes. But when you work with that stuff as well, but on top of that food... Yeah. It's ridiculous the amount of waste you see. I'm always amazed when I go in the back lane behind restaurants and see the rubbish bins, you know. So for me, um, having a property and, and having waste and also, you know, being in a, a rural community where people need the land for their incomes, mm. um, it sort of made us a bit more aware of, of, the, of what we should be doing to look after it, you know. Mm. And I mean, we, we have the ability, we have great rainfall, we have the ability to catch rain so we don't, we don't have to always use tap water we can use rainwater. um you know we we have a garden that we can compost a lot of greens we have chickens which can eat the greens and things so we we're basically just trying to work in a system that's all looking after itself yeah with the main objective that it feeds into the restaurant but you know there's there's things that happen i mean when you work in that way all of a sudden all your staff have much more appreciation for the work you do as well yeah. you know the customers understand and have much more appreciation for the food also because they can see the amount of effort that goes into to creating this like this space that's 
that is clean, yeah. that is, you know, safe in a sense, and that is green. So Yeah. I read you even make your own charcoal. We do, things. actually. So that level of attention to detail, your mind must be whirring all the time. <laughs> I think of every element. I think it's about, um, you know, you can buy charcoal. It's often not as good as if you make it. And... Um, <laughs> And really, I guess, you know, we do stupid things. We grind flour and we grind wheat instead of buying flour. We do. You see, that's hyper attention to detail. But, you know, look, to be honest, it might not be for the best. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm still, I always question, are we doing this? Are we doing this because it makes it better? Or is this just some stupid thing we've decided to do? And I I guess it's about reevaluating what you do all the time as well. Yeah. But essentially, that thing about, um, Providing a flavour or flavour profile or a series of flavour profiles that gives a cuisine an identity, which gives Bray itself an identity, I'm really interested in that, you know. Yeah. So um, doing all those little things, although they, they seem crazy, we've built them into our sort of working day and working week mm. and month and and they help to to distinguish our food. Yeah. They help to make the experience that people have when they come to the restaurant Something they can't go somewhere else for, yeah. you know. And when you're, when you're, you know, when you're in Australia mm. already, mm-hmm. from an international perspective, and then when you're one and a half hours from that closest city as well, there's got to be more than the plates look nice. Yeah, you know, there has to be a reason to be. There has yeah. to be a reason for people to make the journey and make the effort. And one of my, I'm always conscious of the fact that people have made a big effort. Mm. So we should be making a bigger effort, you know, yeah. for them to, to yeah. come and, and want to come back and things like that, you know. I like that attitude. Is there anything that you're doing that you're not currently, any cuisines or techniques that you'd like to explore, anything that you've learned? You just spoke to me before we started about this trip that you've done and you've gone to Amsterdam in America. And... Thousands. <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny thing. I mean, working in a really busy restaurant like ours with what essentially would be a fairly small team compared to the work that we do yeah um unfortunately one of the things that often gets put to the side is is creativity and exploration of of ideas and yeah. techniques and things like that and it's that's a shame because that's where you stagnate you know that's you know, i carry around books all the time and always making notes of of things to look up and sometimes things just hang around in your head like you know baggage <laughs> yeah. unfortunately yeah and they don't get worked on and it's really frustrating and then sometimes two years will pass and you'll realise you're having the same ideas you had two years ago and they could be done and dusted by now, but it's just <laughs> finding that time to, to work on things, you know. So, um, look, in terms of techniques, it's look, some of the techniques that are probably more interesting to me at the moment are some of the farming techniques that we do, you know, um, growing in different depth soils and uh, composting with different things and, yeah. you know, just just trying to find ways that, things impart flavour. Yeah, going right back to the root source of it, yeah. You know, one of the things that we do is each year I find that we're growing less varieties of food but more quantity and far better quality Mm -hmm. as we discover what grows well in our area and also what's better for our needs, you know. I mean, 10 years ago, I just planned everything, Mm. go crazy. Yeah. And then you don't use it mm. or then it all ripens at once and you can't deal with it. So really looking toward ways to manage the surpluses and and the timings yeah. and the quality and the interesting, you know, we probably 
tend to go things that are more uncommon yeah. or things that are uh, really expensive when you buy them organically yeah. um, or things that don't travel and store well. Yeah. So we have a policy of not refrigerating any of the vegetables in a restaurant. We pick them and, and we serve them. Wow. Or if we need to store them, we store them in a room at 18 degrees, not at 2 degrees. Yeah. Things like berries, strawberries, we pick just before service. Make my mouth also just yeah. thinking about Like we grow, you know, it's this ridiculous thing. Like strawberries is a great example. Mm. If you buy a strawberry from a supermarket, it's got the texture of what an apple has. Yeah. They shouldn't have that texture. Yeah. <laughs> a strawberry should never crunch in your ear. Mm. You know, it should never do that. And mm. one of the problems is they've been, you know, they've been bred to, to store. Yeah. They've been bred to package in those little punnets. Yeah. You know, and so harvesting um, for use there, you get to serve the strawberries. They're warm. They're warm from the sunshine, you know, and they're just like... And so we can't take credit sometimes for the for the things we do on the plate because it's it's we don't do things you know mm. I think there's something really beautiful about serving a piece of fruit to someone in a restaurant that's known for creativity you know it's it's one of the things we do all summer when the stone fruits around you know, pretty much from like early December last year until just before I left we've been just serving courses of fruit. Mm. You know, but it's the best tasting. Fruit. But you can't yeah. buy it. You yeah. know, you can't you can't buy a, a warm peach mm. that hasn't been sprayed. You yeah. know, chefs always come back to the kitchen covered in like fruit. <laughs> Where have you been? We've got this, we've got this old mulberry tree on the property, <laughs> and um, I don't know if you've ever picked mulberries, but it's impossible not to be covered, stained like blood. Yeah. Um, and obviously they really stain, and so, <laughs> and when they're right to pick, they just. They just collapse, you yeah. know. So it's a big a big thing to want to pick the mulberries. <laughs> Telltale sign when they come back to the kitchen. I like that. Um, so you're here today to cook with James Lowe at Lyles, which is super exciting, and I'm really, really pleased to be going tonight. Excellent. Um, James has said that he believes that a lot of chefs from around the world really rate our restaurant scene now, which is great, but they still are a bit kind of iffy about our produce. Yep. Talking about the great produce you have on your doorstep, what do you think from the little time you've been here? I think, to be honest, I think... Um, like England and Greater Britain is very well known actually for seafood. Yeah. You know what I mean? And last night I had at Lyles and we had incredible seafood. Yeah. You know, incredible. Um, I think one of the problems it's it's not just here, it's sort of globally. Yeah. Is because of the emphasis on, on protein, on meat, basically. Yeah. Uh, and the money that can be made from it and I guess just the cultural history of farming is that everyone's trying to grow the best cow yeah. you know or fishing is like I guess once was quite a lucrative sort of business it's more difficult but you know the oceans are they're disappearing yeah. <laughs> you know the amount of food that we take from the ocean is not ideal one of the problems James said to me last night is that he just has so much trouble finding good quality fruit and vegetables yeah. you know and trying to find people that want to commit to doing that and we've had a real wave in Australia lately I mean it's the same reason I basically moved out of the city mm. that's I I thought when I came back from Spain that there wasn't the quality of vegetable around in the market yeah. that would allow me to have the restaurant that I wanted to have yeah. which is quite you know plant leaning um, and so it just was about taking control of it. and then over time over the last 10 years of being doing that it's just become something that I do now yeah. and I could never do anything different 
Um, but yeah, James was, was mentioning that to me last night, and, and it's unfortunate because, you know, the the plant kingdom is so diverse, it's so incredible. We eat such a small amount of what's available, you know, and often often we eat the more unusual things in restaurants, yeah. but they're not part of the normal diet. Yeah. But they could be, yeah. you know, they could be. Yeah. Okay, so. Your book came out last month. Tell us why you decided to write it, because it's a really detailed study of what you've been doing at Bray. It's not your traditional, Mm. well, not a standard cookery book, is it? No, it's not. (laughs) Um, Look, I was lucky that Fiden contacted me. (laughs) Um, I probably, at the time, uh, the restaurant was eight months old when they called me, and um, I always felt very, very privileged to be offered the opportunity to be published with Fiden, and obviously it's the first Australian... Chef monograph from with Fiden, you know, yeah. and um, and there might not be another one, you know. Yeah. So I feel, you know, I feel like that was really great to be able to do that. Um, when I talked to the editor at the time, uh, you know, we spent a couple of months going back and forth on contract and whatever and what would be in the book, and, and they were talking about you know 60, 65 dishes from the restaurant, and um, the restaurant was eight months old, and I was like, wow. <laughs> We don't, <laughs> we don't have 65 dishes yet, yeah. so we better get to work. Um, and pretty much at the same time, the rest we won Restaurant of the Year in our local food guide, mm-hmm. um, and then the next year I won Chef of the Year in, in three guides in Australia, um, and everything just changed, yeah. and we appeared on the, the longer list of the 50 best, and yeah, just became impossible to find time yeah. and find creative space and all this. so so really in a funny sense the the book because it's not a life's work it's not it's not 10 15 years of of looking back over a career yeah you know and i didn't want it to be that there's no recipes in the book that that aren't from bray they're not there's no other time period yeah and essentially i think one of the great things about it is it's like a snapshot of of a restaurant in motion, yeah. you know, it's not it's not the historical thing. Of course, there's a big content at the start, my story, my background, yeah. some essays on different things, the bread that we do, our garden, working with the garden, things like that, which I think are things that are interesting for professionals, but also interesting for just the general reader to hear about the effort that goes yeah. into doing what we do, you know. Um, and then the recipes were literally like, well, there's 40, I've only got 25 to go, you know, and, you know, doing recipes and doing things in the kitchen and thinking, oh, that's no good, that can't go in, mm. putting something on the menu. Because we, we do change the menu fairly frequently. Yeah. So putting things on in the restaurant and going, please let this be good enough to, <laughs> to warrant a space in a book that's going to be around forever. Um, and often there wasn't. And as soon as there was, I was on the phone to the photographer Colin, get down here. Making you work hard we're, then, by the sounds. We're going we're gonna to shoot just two dishes this week, <laughs> drive down. So, um, so in that sense, I think it's, I think it's an, interesting, an interesting concept that it's, it's, it's almost like a, it's a diary of dishes, yeah. so to speak, of the seasons, but of just like two years. Yeah. Um, so hopefully they still warrant their space in a few years. I reckon so, <laughs> by the sound of it. Okay, and I'm going to let you go in a minute because I know you need to get busy and get cracking for tonight. But what's next in the next six months or year? What, what can you see as your future or any, anything you're working towards? Um, look, we just... Um, we, we, again, back to the farm. We really, we've really been putting a lot of effort into, I guess, changing the health of the property that we work on. Yeah. It's been strictly organic for three and a half years now. It's been a massive improvement in, in like biodiversity. You know, you walk out of the restaurant 
in the dark at night time and all you can hear is frogs everywhere. Mm. It's a really beautiful thing and like I'm, I'm thinking at the moment for me that's like the highlight of coming to Bray. I don't yes. even know if other people <laughs> notice that but I walk out at night time to go home and I'm thinking this is incredible, you know, because it wasn't like that three and a half years ago. Yeah. Um, and really just expanding the production side of things, you know, and, and not necessarily just to, so we can have supply 100% of our own fruit and vegetables because that's impossible to do that. And, I mean, we work in a, a community where other people do very good versions of that and we want to support the local economy, economy as well. You know, being self-sufficient isn't actually that great for a local economy, a small economy. You need to be contributing, you know. So if we want to have farmers around, we, we make sure that we do buy things off people. Yeah. Um, but really, yeah, just just um, just before we left, we we dug out a few more garden beds, and we've got them resting for the next few months, just planting in summer. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just improving that, I guess, improving what we do day to day. Strapping in for the ride, I suppose. <laughs> Sounds really good. I need to book my ticket. Yeah, get down there. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're it was welcome. really nice to meet you. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thank you. Okay, now who wants to find out how to craft the perfect old-fashioned? Let's see what Alex found out this week. So hello, I'm here with Eddie Russell, Master Distiller at Wild Turkey in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, and he's going to talk to us about all things bourbon, its history, how to taste it, and how to use it to create the perfect old-fashioned. So Eddie, you've flown all the way over from Kentucky to be with us today. Welcome. Thank you. Um, So we Brits are quite loyal whiskey drinkers, but... um, what I'd like to know a bit more about is how bourbon and Kentucky bourbon differs from the whiskies we might be drinking at home. Right. So an American whiskey from the beginning, as America was formed in the 1700s, the farmers along the East Coast started taking their excess grains, which was mainly rye at that time, started making whiskey. But as America was formed and they started moving out into the East and West and all around, when they came over the hills into Kentucky, corn was the predominant grain. Right. So the distillers started using corn, rye, and barley malt. So there's three grains basically in most bourbons. And the corn is something that gave it a little sweetness where rye was a little more of that earthy, floral, bitter type taste. Um, bourbon actually started with the Reverend Elijah Craig. He was a Southern Baptist minister, and of course, they always said they just made it for medicinal purposes back right. in those days. <laughs> I see. Uh, but I don't quite believe that no, too much. But he was the first guy that put it in a barrel that was bur- burnt or charred on the inside. Okay, where was that in exactly? In Kentucky. In Kentucky. Yeah, in what is Bourbon County, Kentucky, right. basically. And he was shipping it down south mainly. Evidently, there was a lot of people sick in the south because that's where all the medicinal whiskey went to. Um, He burnt the inside of the barrel, and there's a lot of great stories why he did that. Most likely, he was reusing that barrel, and he was trying to burn a taste of something that had been packed in that barrel out. But what it did was it gave it color because everything was a white liquid back in those days. Right. So people started asking for that whiskey from Bourbon, Kentucky. So... Bourbon was born. Bourbon, uh, where you have your scotches, your Irish whiskies. Scotches are basically about regions. They're malt-based. Mm-hmm. Um, Irish whiskies are a little lighter. Bourbons are bigger and bolder. They have a lot of more character, a lot of more flavor with the three different grains because you get the sweetness from the corn, you get the spiciness from the rye, and then the malt gives it some nutty-type flavors. Okay. The barrel gives it a lot of flavor. When you burn the inside of that barrel, you caramelize the sugars. 
So you get caramel notes. There's natural vanillins in oak. So as a bourbon, as America grew, they started putting restrictions on each type of whiskey. So bourbon has more restrictions than any whiskey in the world. Scotch has to be made in Scotland. Mm-hmm. It has to be aged in Scotland for so many years. Irish whiskey the same way. In America, you have Tennessee whiskeys, you have straight whiskeys, you have blended whiskeys, but we make the bourbon whiskeys. And in bourbon whiskey, we can't add anything artificial to it. So the color has to be natural. We have to use a brand new cast or barrel each time. We're Scotch and Irish reuse barrels over and over. We have to use a new one each time. Okay. And Um, how long are they aged for? So four years in a day, most of them. Four years Uh, in a day? uh, most Most of them do that now while... Turkey, we do six to 12 years, so okay. we age a little longer. It depends on what you're looking to get out of it. Uh, the longer it's in that barrel up to a point, the better. Now, we can't age as long as uh, Scotches and Irish because our temperature change and using that new barrel, it takes on too much of the characteristics of the wood. Okay. So, so the, the longer it's in the barrel, the more woody uh, and... Yes, if it gets too long. So that 6 to 12 years is to us is the perfect range okay. in the bourbon industry. You know, if, if I'm using an 8-year-old bourbon, it's like a 20-year-old scotch. Right. So we, we can't age it quite as long as they do. Um, so for us, the taste, instead of that either smoky or peaty or iodine taste that a scotch has or that soft easy sweetness that a, a, a Irish whiskey has. We're a little more complex. We start out with maybe some fruits or, or some sweetness of some kind. Sometimes I get butterscotch. Sometimes I get stone fruit. Sometimes I get cherry. But always in mid-palate, you're going to get a spiciness from that rye grain. Okay. Does it differentiate? Like different bourbons differentiate? Everybody sort of has a distinct taste they want. Like wines, you know? Yeah, exactly. Got- exactly. Like wines. And for us, it we like the sweetness, but also the big spicy, bold character. Mm-hmm. That's what our, our bourbon's about. But some like a little softer taste, so they might not use as much rye. So you can adjust a little bit for different tastes and different flavors. Um, but really, we have laws that we have to follow minimum standards. To be a bourbon, it has to be 51% corn. So that's the major grain in there. It could be 100% if you wanted yeah. to, but at least 51 it has to be aged in a brand new barrel, mm-hmm. oak barrel. We all use white oak with chard on the inside. And minimum of two years. But everybody, once you get to four years in a day, you don't have to stay to age on it. Is there a reason for that extra day? Uh, because four years is the minimum. So mm-hmm. you got to do that day okay. to get past that four okay, years. So that's why I say four years <laughs> yeah. a day. And by law, you don't have to stay to age. Okay. So we're, if I'm putting an age on a whiskey, on a bourbon whiskey, if I say 10 years, every single barrel in there has to be 10 years. But if it has no age, that means it's at least four years in a day. Okay. Uh, so that's why they do that. And like I said, everybody's looking for a little bit difference, mm-hmm. whether you're a higher proof, a lower proof alcohol content. Uh, our bourbon has been known for, in the beginning, everybody bought it at 100 proof. Right. Wow. And then they started lowering the proof. So yes. 80 proof is the lowest proof we can put in a bottle and call mm-hmm. it a straight bourbon whiskey. So a lot of people did that. But for us, we think as you add more water to it, you take a lot of that natural flavor away. Okay. So for us, we're more of a high, not only a high rye and high malt content, we're a little higher proof, which holds up better in any kind of drink. So, yeah, so uh, the main 
well, one of the main um, reasons people know bourbon um, that I know are from drinking old fashions. Exactly. And I hear you've got the ideal recipe for an old fashioned. Oh, we do. Um, why does bourbon lend itself particularly well to an old fashioned? Because it, it has the character and it has the flavor. It has that spiciness from that rye. Okay. Uh, other things, you know, whether it's a scotch and has that real smoky peaty that comes through in a drink. But a lot of the lighter taste in whiskeys, when you start adding things to them, the flavor goes away. Right, yeah, cool. So with a bourbon, you've got that rye that has that spice in there. It has that character. It has that heavy taste that comes through in a drink. So that's the main reason. And then us, uh, with the higher proof, that helps a lot. That stands up better in the drink. Okay. So are you going to um, give us a quick lowdown on how to make an old-fashioned? Yeah, we're going to try one out. <laughs> Um, so which bourbon would you recommend? So our 101 Wild Turkey is our main product. Okay, uh, it works perfect in a drink because the bartenders love it because it has the proof to hold up. Mm -hmm. But it also has a lot of character, a lot of flavor because we use a lot of rye and barley malt. If you just use corn, it would be sweet and that would be it. So okay. if you added any sweeteners to it, then you lose a lot of what's in there. Uh, so our 101 wild turkey is the one that we like to use and bartenders like to use in a drink. Okay. I don't know if you can hear, but we've got a couple of being whipped up as we speak. <laughs> it, it's really a simple drink, and I think that's what the bourbon guys, if you look at all the classic drinks, uh, old-fashioned being definitely one of the main ones, they're very simple. There's not too many ingredients with them because you have a great taste in bourbon. But what you're doing is sort of mellowing those tastes down to where other people that don't like the big bug taste, you're mellowing them down and keeping those great flavors in there. So what else have you got in an old-fashioned then? So in old-fashioned, you're basically going to have a little sugar, simple syrup, brown sugar, whatever you want to use in there. So it doesn't matter what type of sugar? Not really. Uh, a lot of people use the simple syrup, but brown sugar, I think, was what they sort of used at the beginning. Mm -hmm. You're going to put a few dashes of Angostura bitters in there, just a little bitterness. Uh, and then the bourbon, you get the ice in there and get it swirled around. It's a stirred drink. It's not a shaken drink. So you get that in there, and it, it lends to the taste. So you're sort of mellowing it out a little bit. And that's been the, bur the growth of bourbon. Uh, the growth of bourbon has really been in the on-premise where they're making drinks. Yeah. These were drinks that were made back before Prohibition. Thanks. And then they sort of went away because yeah. people drink their bourbon straight or neat or with a little ice. Now these drinks are coming back. And bourbon citrus flavors go great with it. So this is sort of topped off with a little orange peel, a mm -hmm. little zest from the orange. So that it blends into the taste very, very well. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> actually ready now so does is there a specific time you should stir it for uh i think it just takes a little bit a couple minutes or something just to get the ice to melt a little bit okay uh, so, so you're just it, releasing the aromas of the, yeah of the exactly of the exactly okay amazing and then any particular amount of um like ice cubes or well you, you definitely want to put enough ice cubes in there to fill your glass mm -hmm. up and then your ingredients really is based on how you want it if you like a more of a bourbon flavor you might add a little more bourbon if you like it a little sweeter you're going to add a little more sweetness mm -hmm. to it uh, the bitters is usually two or three dashes, but you could add more if you wanted yeah. to. So it gives you opportunity to see how you like it best. It's a simple drink that anybody can make. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you sort of figure out how you like it the best. Being a bourbon person, 
you know, I like the bourbon to really yeah. stand out. But some people might like a little more sweetness. Some might like a little more bitterness. So it gives you opportunity to blend those together the way you like them. I wish everyone could smell this because there's like the zesty aroma from the orange pills. The orange pill zest really tops it off. Like I said, for bourbon, any kind of citrus flavors. There's citrus flavors in bourbon, but mm -hmm. the citrus just seems to bring everything so out. It really brings it out and rounds yep. it off, doesn't it, nicely? Well, thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for coming. No problem. Thanks for listening to this week's Olive Magazine podcast. If you like this episode, please don't forget to go review and rate us on iTunes. For more information on things in this episode, head to our website, olivemagazine.com. You can pick up a copy of our packed issue now from newsagents or download the app version. Bye for now, and we'll be back next week with even more food and drink chat.